So good to be here today. I'm grateful that you are here. I know we have a lot of folks who are out because of Thanksgiving, doing Thanksgiving types of things. Did everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Anybody have a bad Thanksgiving? We want to pray right now for you if you had a bad Thanksgiving. I don't know, maybe you ate something that you didn't agree with. I don't want to go too far into that, but it's possible. Um, anyway, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. We actually had a fantastic Thanksgiving, and we did what we normally do. We ate way too much. Um, so we are in week two of our series called DNA, and we're going to get into some interesting things today. And as we dig into the letter of James, James is a very short letter, but one of the things that James is, I think it's often overlooked is two different things really about James and his, his message within the passage we're going to look at today is James is being provocative when he says what he's about to say in James 2. I invite you to open your Bible up, or your smartphone, your device, whatever, into James 2. We're going to look at verse 14 through 26. But before we do that, I just want you to know that what he's saying is a way of if trying to provoke a response from the people who are listening. And then also one of the key things about James is just understanding that particular letter is this to me is one of the greatest defenses of the faith because Jesus or James is Jesus's half brother and James was convinced that Jesus was God so much so that he died believing that Jesus was God and he wrote this letter explaining things about his half brother being God which I think is incredible which begs the question and I say this every time I'm even touching James because you have to what would it take for you to convince your brother or sister that you're God? That would be what? Impossible, right? But, it's, but it is possible with Jesus because Jesus was God and he lived his life in such a way connected with the Father that even his own family post-resurrection was convinced that Jesus was God. So we're going to get into that in just a minute, but I want us to start here. This time of year, coming off of Thanksgiving you know, bad decisions we made, maybe eating on Thanksgiving and, you know, you eat and then you have the whole, the turkey coma that follows the eating and you enjoy all the food. Now, to me, the food is amazing. Marla made most of the food or all the food this year. It was amazing. And, and all of that's great. But one of the things that's also that you see right after Thanksgiving is they already start like putting articles and ads out there about New Year's resolutions and now losing weight and paths to lose weight and all of the ways to get fit. And literally one or it was two days after, because it was yesterday, I literally saw an article yesterday and, and it was clickbait. Who in here hates clickbait? Anyone hate clickbait? Does anybody still know that it's clickbait and you still get trapped into reading the whole article? Like it's so frustrating. So I look at this article and it was like, it was something like, you know, destroying the myths about losing weight, that it, it doesn't take as much as what you would think, and blah, blah, blah. So it was like this whole thing, and I'm like, oh, maybe it's a fresh idea. So I like, I'm scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. I'm like, give me the thing. Like, what's the, what's the secret? What is the, the reason why I looked at this article to begin with? So I'm scrolling through, and I'm scrolling through, and there's like big ad, and scrolling through, and scrolling through. And basically, the whole bottom line of the whole thing was, if you work out three days a week, you're guaranteed to see results in the new year. And I was like, I just gave up 10 minutes of my life reading this, this article. But there is some truth to it, right? Because we know that if you want to see some sort of physical change, 
Physical exercise will bring about physical change. Whether or not we like it or not, whether or not we're committed to or not, whether or not we even want to or not, we just know that there are things that we can do physically that bring about a physical transformation or change. Can we all agree with that? Say amen if you agree. Right? Say amen if you're not interested in getting fit. All right. Well, I know there's somebody. You're just being a little shy. Uh, you said it to yourself, man, the best thing you said all day. Here's the thing. We know when it comes to physical exercise that it will bring about a physical transformation. But the good news is this. The same thing happens spiritually. Our spiritual exercises have a direct result in our everyday lives also. So what we do spiritually has an effect on us. One of the the big challenges that we face when it comes to spiritual things is, well, uh, there's a lot of challenges, but one of the big challenges that we see is we just tend to not see the results up front. So if you don't see the results up front, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to think, it's easy for some people to even doubt their salvation to begin with, and it's easy easy to get discouraged because they thought, hey, I just had this, this big moment. I gave my life to Jesus. It was highly emotional, and I know that I got saved, and yet you go forward from that, and you're like, but my life, I just don't know that my life looks any different than what it does before. What James talks about in this passage is he, he references a couple things we can do, spiritual exercises, And he also helps us to see that ultimately there's three different types of faith. Only one of them is actually true faith in Christ. But there's something that's helpful about us, about this, because we can be so confused to think, I'm not even growing. How can I even know that I'm growing? And what I'm going to give you at the back end of this from a quote from a fantastic book is I'm going to give you four different ways. Then we're just going to touch on, gonna touch on them at the end. I want you to write them down when we get to the end. And once you see these four things, these are ways that you can kind of say, hey, and you can kind of look at these things and say, okay, am I growing as it compares to this thing right here? There's some common language that we've talked about for years now, and it's just the right time for us to talk about it now that we're in a series called DNA because DNA is who we are, but it's also who we're becoming. So it's not just... It's not just who we were, but it's who we are and it's who we're becoming. And so there's this, these three little phrases that have really kind of surrounded us. And I've talked about these for just at length throughout sermons. And, and it's this. And some of it's, it's going to be new for some of you at home. Maybe some of you new in the room. It's this. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. And do what Jesus did. And so for us, and we, if we're going to pursue discipleship, because that's ultimately what this is, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. The most simplistic way of understanding this is to say, the more things that I can do to, to align myself spiritually, to spend time with Jesus, that ultimately I'm going to become like Jesus. Notice the order here. The order isn't, well, I just needed to become like Jesus under my own power, and then I'm just going to do what Jesus did, because that would be exhausting. But instead... Once we use these spiritual exercises and we be with Jesus, then we ultimately will become like Jesus, and then we will ultimately do what Jesus did. This is a a simple way for us to understand and for us not to fall into some sort of pathway of legalism, because this isn't a matter of us doing things to try and earn something from God. It's a matter of doing things because we already have something from God, and we're going to see that in this passage. So why, why are these three principles so difficult to live out? Why are they so difficult to live out? Why is it such a challenge for us to hear these things and think, well, they don't really pertain to my everyday life? It's this. 
Because all of these faith practices, they actually orient our hearts to God to become more like Christ. The reason why it's difficult is because our hearts are not inclined to first look at Christ. Our hearts are inclined to look at something else, either to look at ourselves or to look at the world or be distracted. And it is only through the gospel's work in our lives, after someone commits their life to Jesus, that the Spirit of God starts aligning our heart to towards Christ so that we can become more like Christ. And again, it's not overnight. So again, why is this so challenging? I think one of the reasons why it's so challenging, there's three different things here. I think if we're to rally this around, why is this so challenging? Not only is it the orientation of our heart, it's because even some of us have sat in church services or Sunday school or groups or however, uh, serving teams, however, the, the things that have happened within the church world that have shaped us. I think three different things also explain the difficulty. And one is this, undiscipled disciples. They're undiscipled disciples. And I'll summarize it as saying this, the fried chicken is good, but the sins are bad. It's just undiscipled disciples. That maybe you've given your life to Jesus, and yet you've never actually entered into discipleship with Jesus at all after that. And you're undiscipled. And you have this moment in time where you gave your life to Jesus where you, you, you stepped over by God's grace, you stepped over that faith line, he drew you, you, you gave of, of yourself and control to Jesus, and yet you've never been discipled. And you sat in, in many church services where there was never a reference of the cost of discipleship. There was never a talk about of what Peter says in 2 Peter, the things that we need to add to our faith. The things that we do to contribute to our own walk and we're become undiscipled disciples. Or maybe it's over-discipled disciples. And here's what I mean. That you were a part of a church and maybe a group and yet it was maybe there was imposed legalism on you. So this, this over-discipled, so then it wasn't even discipleship at all. It was a matter of rules and rule-keeping and then feeling bad and making you feel kind of oppressed and pushed down and making you feel like you just never could actually be what it was that Jesus said you could be and yet there was this longing in your heart and yet because of the whole faith, faith system that you were maybe raised in, that you were overly discipled and it was this oppression that was put on by someone it was just these rules. And maybe even those rules that were imposed upon you where you were, your private sin was called out publicly which then brought more shame upon you and although that spiritual leader could have meant what was happening, it meant for good, but it was just bad because you, you just didn't sense the love of Jesus in that moment. You just felt called out and exposed before everyone. This is over-discipled disciples. Or, or the last one is non-intentional discipleship. To where somebody just gave their life to Jesus and then you automatically thought, all I need to do is attend every church thing. You just need to attend it all. You need to attend every service, every group. You need to serve on every team. You need to be a part of this. If the doors are swinging open to the church, you have to be here. And it's just not intentional. So for you, you just got exhausted. And we, we all can do that for a little while, but non-intentional discipleship is just you just roll on and roll on and roll on until you roll out of steam. And then you start looking about and you hear people talk about, well, I just need to push away. And I just, I'm just doing too much. I just need to push away from the church. And all of a sudden, they don't, don't just push away from a little bit of the th things of the church. They push away from everything and everybody. 
simply because they, they've gotten so in, wrapped in non-intentional discipleship and they've got discouraged. And these, these all are easy traps for us to fall in. You see, I, I believe that the pathway of the gospel is better than uh, just being an undiscipled disciple or an over-discipled disciple or non-intentional discipleship. All of these lead to frustration, anger, and exhaustion. But the gospel is, is supposed to be lived out in such a way, to be lived out in such a way, to where it actually gives life instead of taking life away. So our goal here at the church is not for you to do more things, unless, of course, it's for you to look like Christ. Because our goal is to become more like Christ. So when we talk about things at the church and everything that we do goes through the, the filter of belong events, become events, beyond events, or begin again events. The, everything that we do goes through the prism of those four different things, for the, the filter of those four different things. When we bring something to you to do, it isn't that, well, we now, now we need to look at the church calendar. Like if we go through the church calendar, we need to put some on the calendar for these people. It isn't a matter of that. We don't want to give you anything that makes your life more frustrating, more exhausting, or more demanding. What we want to do is help you to become more like Christ. So every environment that we have here at the church is to help you to become more like Christ. And I know that's not the story with everybody. You see, the way that we can get this right is by leaning into what James says. So now let's read James 2, verse 14. Through 26. James starts with a a rhetorical question and he's anticipating a negative response. He's anticipating a negative response. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 18, but someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous by what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture is fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is also. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want to clarify something because there's a passage near the end of what we just read together that can be confusing if you don't also understand this through the lens of other scriptures. You always, you should in, interpret scripture with scripture. So there, there's a, a verse here 
that could be problematic, and I'm not going to cover the other connecting verses, but I'm going to write the references down. You can look at them later if you choose to. Verse 24 says this, You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. If you were just to cherry-pick this verse, which you'd be wrong to do, but if you were just to cherry-pick this verse, you could end up with some really bad theology. So when you want to interpret the Scripture, you should first interpret the Scripture the, the, the context that it's written in. So if you understand the context that it's written in, you would not be confused. But you could even go outside of this, and you could go to, here's the references for you, Romans 10, 9 and 10, uh, Romans 3, 21 through 24, and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So if you were to simply look at this you, in verse 24, it says, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. It looks like, well, you have to do some things to be saved. And that's just simply not the gospel message. But the context of what James is getting at here is to show the direct connection between faith and works. So, in those other, those other verses, you see that a person is saved by faith alone and not by works, but simply uh, allowing those works to give evidence of the faith that existed prior. So he starts with this rhetorical question, and he says... What good is it, my brother, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Again, a rhetorical question, and he's expecting a negative response. The word that's, that's mentioned here, the word faith, he says if a man claims to have faith, that, that word faith is, is a word used throughout in the New Testament, and it's the word pistis. And it means trust, guarantee, or assurance. It means trust, guarantee, or assurance. It can mean any of those three things. So now let's, let's look at this through, I would just say this is my commentary of that, that particular verse, knowing what the word faith means, because that word can be confusing. So I'm just going to put this in, into my own little commentary of sorts. And here's the, here's the question, if we were to rewrite this with, with expanding the word faith, and it would read as this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have trust in Christ, have guarantee of salvation, and assurance of salvation, but their life doesn't look any different? What, what good would it be if somebody, if they said, yes, I, I trust Christ, and I have a guarantee of salvation, I, and I have the assurance of, of my salvation, but their life doesn't look any different? Keep that on the screen, Matthew, for a couple seconds. And one of the things I find really encouraging about this and really this, this question that James is getting to is, is this. He said, what kind of life would you live for Christ if you knew you couldn't fail? What kind of life would you live for Christ if you knew that you could fully trust him with the result? If you knew that there was a guarantee of your salvation and you could live in assurance of your salvation, what kind of life would that faith produce in you? It would be limitless, would it not? Not for you to go out and do whatever it is that you want to do, but it would be limitless when God spurs you to do what he's calling you to do. That's the kind of faith that James is getting at here. So he breaks down 
three different types of faith here. But he starts with this question. But the, but the, the question here ultimately is, the faith, true faith in Christ and a true guarantee of salvation and true assurance of salvation should lead you and I to live such lives of faith that we would be just in eager anticipation to do what it is that God wants us to do. Knowing that we are partnering with Him to make a difference in the world. I heard a story this week of it was a man who was working with his two sons and they were mending a fence. And the father was taking his time and he was helping his sons to understand how he was going to mend the fence and, and they were involved in it and they've got the tools and he's basically talking to them. And there's another man who walks along the, the road and he looks over at this man who's helping his two sons to mend this fence and the man calls out to, this other, to, to the man and two sons and he says, he's like, you know that's going to take you five times as long to mend a fence, to mend that fence. The, the man, he says this kind of scoffing at the man with his, the other man with his two sons, so, but the man with the two sons, he calls out to the man on the road and he says, well, sir, that's where, that's where you've got it wrong because I'm not mending fences, I'm making men. You see, I think sometimes what we have to understand is when Christ invites us into a life of faith, it's not just to think about what it is that we're accomplishing, but who it is that's accomplishing it with us. Which is why last week I said that, that we're just ordinary people who get to do extraordinary things with God. Extraordinary things with God. Notice in this passage, going back to James 2, notice in this passage after this rhetorical question, James drills down and he, and he uses this, the reference of meeting a physical need, but he's talking about meeting this physical need, but he's also referencing a spiritual need. So notice what it says here. It says in verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it is not, if it is not accomplished by action, is dead. So he's talking about the most basic of physical needs. And again, notice how provocative this, this particular verse is because he's saying something that, that if somebody were to say this, they would be, that would just be very arrogant, wouldn't it not? That would be hurtful. If somebody were to say, they were to, to, to see somebody without clothes and daily food, and if somebody else were to just walk by them and says, oh, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, there's no way they're going to be warm, and there's no way they're going to be well fed because they're undernourished and they're underclothed. And again, so when James is saying this, it's in a way to kind of shock the system for them to, to lean in to this message. But he talks about the physical need, and then he talks about the spiritual need. Because we all have physical needs and we all have spiritual needs. The deeper spiritual needs, the basic need of salvation comes down to this. How can I get rid of my guilt? How can I know God? And how can I live a meaningful life? These are questions that every human being asks. We, we ask it, maybe not in those particular words, but we ask it in the things that we do to try and meet 
some sort of satisfaction at the soul level of these things. How can I get rid of my guilt? How can I know God? How can I live a meaningful life? And then James unpacks how to do this. Verse 18. Notice what he says. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God, good, even the demons believe and shudder. I'll illustrate it in this way. So Marla and I have been married for 28 years. And so just suppose that the day that Marla and I got married, it was a great day. Everybody was there. We were all gussied up. I don't even know if that's a term we use today. I just used it. We're all gussied up. We're all, we look great. Everything's amazing. We're, we're hand in hand. We're arm in arm. And, you know, we're hugging and kissing, doing all the things that newlyweds do. And everything's great. But say on that day that, you know, that once the, all the ceremony was over and all of that, what, and I and made my vows, but what if on that day was the last day that I actually told Marla that I loved her? What if on that day was the last day that I actually showed her that I loved her? Would she be convinced that I still love her 28 years later if I've just told her 28 years ago? Would she be convinced of that? Or would she be wanting like more of our relationship? The answer is obvious, isn't it? You see, for us, when James talks about this, he's talking about the type of of faith and love of God that not only is based off of one moment in time, but that one moment in time of being saved then shapes us for the end of time. I'll back up and say it in this way, based off of this passage. Verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, it is not accompanied by action, is dead. That, that word dead is a Greek word, and it's the word nekros, and it means morally or spiritually bankrupt. Morally or spiritually bankrupt. So now let's, let's look at this verse, and then also reading through verse 18 through 19. He says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accomplished by action, is dead. It is morally and spiritually bankrupt. But someone will say, well, you have faith. Well, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You see, faith without action is fiction without salvation. Faith without action is fiction without salvation. James talks about, in this passage, the three different types of faith. Ultimately, he's talking about a dynamic faith. That's when your faith is working, and that's true faith in Christ. But he also talks about an intellectual faith. And it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's a faith that just resides with a bunch of facts and a bunch of knowledge that really hasn't touched the heart. Then he also talks about this emotionally based faith. It's not intellectual faith, but it's just like this emotionally based faith. So your faith is up and down and up and down and up and down. And it's based off, off emotion. It's based off how you feel instead of what God is doing. 
And in this, in this passage, sadly, what we see here is that some of this, like the intellectual dead faith that he talks about here. Does somebody say, well, I have faith. Or you have faith, I have deeds. In other words, I'm just exchanging some things that I know or some things I can do. What James would say is that type of faith is actually not rooted in Christ. It's actually rooted in effort. It's rooted in works. It's rooted in knowledge. It's more of an intellectual faith than it is actually a saving faith. You see, faith is dead when it hasn't touched the heart. Faith is dead when it hasn't touched the heart. It's easy to come into this place or into a Bible study and study, study the Bible or even study the Bible a certain way and think, oh, I can do this and I can check all the boxes and I know how to shade everything, I know how to do everything. And all of that can still produce in you an intellectual and dead faith. You can do all of that. You can jump in through all the hoops. You can study the Bible and not know the God of the Bible. And you can study the Bible and it can puff up your ego and puff up your pride like you've accomplished something because you have a, you've completed a Bible study or you've, you've checked all the boxes during a, you know, in a sermon and you took all the notes. You can have all of these things. You can go through all the motions and it can reside in your intellect and it can never touch your heart and your faith would not be a saving faith. It's tricky, isn't it? Because we think that studying the Bible is important. We, we believe that attending church services is important. We think that people gathering in this room are holy and defining moments. But yet, if we get all caught up in the doing instead of it is who we're becoming... We can start living out an intellectual faith and our pride can be so con- it can make us so convinced that we're doing the right thing and our faith can be as dead as what James is talking about. We can be morally and spiritually bankrupt and have a just a bankroll of knowledge that does not bring about true salvation. And it's tricky. Faith has to touch the heart. I had this, this instance several years ago, a guy by the name of Matt. Matt was someone, his, his whole family came to church, and he came to church with his whole family, but he wasn't a follower of Jesus at the time. He, he didn't even profess Christ. But then there was a moment where he professed Christ, and he became a hyper-Calvinist. And this isn't even about what Calvinism is. It's just a matter of what he was doing. He was a hyper-Calvinist, and he was an antagonist. And he would argue, and he would fuss, and he would drill down on things. And he made it his point to, to try and trip everybody up in their faith and to confuse people in their faith. And he would argue a point, and he was really, really good at it. The thing he was not good at, he, he knew some facts. He knew how to argue. He knew how to debate. He knew the Bible better than most of the Christians that I was around. But what he didn't have was love in his heart. He didn't have love in his heart. 
You see, unfortunately for him, it just became knowledge. Then there was no true change that was evident in his life. And if he saved or not saved, I have no idea. But one of the things I can tell you is, even after he professed to know Christ, his love for other people did not increase. What increased was his judgment of other people. You see, if your faith leaves you loving less, that's not faith in Christ. That's faith in yourself. This is a hard truth, church. If, if your faith is what you would call it, leaves you loving less, that's not faith in Christ. That's just a faith in yourself. That's faith in what you can do. Because if you have a true faith in, in Christ, it's starting to see and live your life in such a way that is different. Because the gospel is, is maturing you and it's a faith rooted in Christ, not in effort, but it is a faith that combines with action. You see, let's move on through our passage. But someone will say, verse 18, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So what is this type of faith that's being talked about? This is not an intellectual faith that has no works, that hasn't touched the heart. This is an emotional faith. Again, it's based off of emotion and not the finished work of the cross. Notice what James says. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. What a haunting idea. This, this Greek word, when it, when it talks about them shuddering, that's not an exaggeration. This Greek word, it means uncontainable, uncontrollable, or violently shaking from extreme fear. That is the demon's response to the power and presence of the king of kings. But some folks, they just simply have an emotional-based faith. And it's not based off of the cross, it's based off how they feel. These, these folks have a faith that they attend church when they feel like it. They don't attend church when they don't feel like it. They, they attend church gatherings when they feel like it, and they don't when they don't feel like it. And they, they, they maybe listen to some things when they feel like it, and if they don't feel like it, they just don't listen to things. And if they, if they feel like it, then they'll actually allow you to love them because, you know, they feel like it. And if they don't feel like it, they just shut the world out because they just aren't feeling it. And what's so dangerous about this type of emotional faith is, obviously, there's no stability, there's no hope, there's no true guarantee of salvation, there's no trust in Christ, and there's no assurance of salvation. And certainly, I'm not saying a person's not saved, but I'm saying you can live in such a way that you can live like you're not saved based off of your emotion. And what James is getting at here in this very challenging reality is that people can live this way, that even Christians can, even Christians can have an intellectual faith where they just base all of what they do is just gathering a bunch of knowledge post-salvation. 
Somebody can post salvation, they can just live their whole Christian life based off, off of emotionalism. And that can happen. But what James lays forth is a better way. I had an instance years ago talking about an emotional faith. I had this or an emotional response to faith. I had this, this instance. I was right next to a dying man, and he was in a hospital bed. And I knew that he was going to die. He knew that he was going to die. The rest of the people around knew that he was going to die. We, we were the only people in the room at the time. But the rest of the family had asked me to go in to speak to him and to share the gospel with him, hoping that he would receive Christ. So I'm, I'm having this conversation with him, and I don't really know him, but everyone believes in his family that he's not saved, and they're hoping that, that I would be able to share the gospel and that he would, he would get saved before he passes away. So I'm sitting down, I'm just talking with him, trying to make some sort of connection, make small talk, and I make my inroad to actually share the gospel, which is always kind of a difficult thing to do. So I, I make my inroad to share the gospel, and as I talk about the, the gospel, and I talk about the cross, and I talk about Jesus, he just starts weeping. He starts weeping. Just the reference of Jesus and what Jesus did. But he's weeping, and he's weeping, and he's weeping. And then I, I gave him the opportunity to respond to the gospel message that I just shared. And you know what he said was? No. He didn't want it. He didn't want it. He was emotionally moved with the truth of his situation. He was emotionally moved with the power and presence of Jesus. He was, he was emotionally moved over the whole experience, but yet, his pride kept him from giving his life to Jesus, although all he had was days yet to live. Pride is a powerful and gripping thing on someone's life. He had all the emotions that made, it, made me think, oh, this is going to be the moment. But he died unbelieving. He died unbelieving. James doesn't want you and I to be people like that. So he goes in verse 20. He says, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And he uses two examples, Abraham and Rahab. He says, was our, was our ancestor Abraham considered righteous by what he did? Or wasn't he considered righteous by what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. It was made whole. It was made perfect by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. We talked about this. Verse 25, the other example. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I want to finish with this. Here's some more things. Maybe in the backlog of your life, there was a moment where you committed your life to Jesus. And if you were to say to me, you know, my life has been perfect. Maybe you've even had some ups and downs. Maybe you've even based your, your, some of your Christian walk on intellectualism or emotionalism, but yet you would, you would say without a doubt, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. 
And, and if that's true of you, I want you to know that I've, I've, I haven't said anything because I'm trying to make you stumble or doubt your salvation. I'm not. For you, if you know that you are indeed saved, what I'm trying to uh, allow God to do, is God's word to do, is to inspire you to add works to your faith because that proves that your faith is real. To works. So what are some works that you could add to help verify this belief so you could be made mature, made whole, made complete as what it says that Abraham was, not just by what he believed, but also by what he, what he believed about God shaped what he did with God. So Bill Hull has these five different things, and, and I want to finish with these from his book called Choose the Life, all about discipleship. So if you're, you're in Christ and you're like, I just don't know that I'm growing. I, I believe that I've, I've, I'm, I'm saved. I've given my life to Jesus. I, I just, I, I need to, maybe I've gotten some discouragement because I haven't felt like I've had some intentional discipleship. So I, because I didn't have intentional discipleship, it was based off how I felt. Or it was just based off of some knowledge that I could gain. I, I want to help you to see this, see faith in a different light. The first thing is believe what Jesus believed. Go into the Gospels. Here's your takeaway. Go into the Gospels. See what, believe what Jesus believed. What did Jesus believe about humanity? What did Jesus believe about his apostles? What did Jesus believe about the power of God? What did Jesus believe about the power of community? What did Jesus believe about himself? What did Jesus believe that he was accomplishing on the cross? When Jesus was prophesying about his own resurrection, what was Jesus believing in that moment, and what should that cause us to believe? After the the resurrection, and Jesus came, and he spent time with his disciples, his, his parting days with his disciples, what was Jesus trying to help the disciples to believe about themselves and about God? What about the gospel? Second thing is this. Live as Jesus lived. How did Jesus, what kind of spiritual disciplines did Jesus have? Grab one or two of those. Allow those things to be building blocks of your discipleship. Just not all of them. Just try a couple. We've talked about these things for years. We're going to continue talking about these things for years. So live as Jesus lived. What was Jesus' pace of life? What was Jesus' morning rhythm like? What, what was Jesus's, how did Jesus' morning rhythm also affect what he did in community? Did Jesus operate from a place of exhaustion? Or did Jesus operate from a different type of place spiritually and physically? Live as Jesus lived. Next is love as Jesus loved. This all has to do with relationships. Love as Jesus loved. And I would add to that, forgive as Jesus forgave. And again, this isn't something we just do under our own power. 
These are things that compound upon one another because the more time that we, that we are with Jesus, the more we're going to become like Jesus and the more we're just going to do what Jesus did. The next thing is this, minister as Jesus ministered. Are you living a life of service? Not just here at the church, at, at, the, at the church that's definitely a part of it, but also outside of the church. Are you waiting on the world to serve you or are you ready to serve the world? Because if you were to look at the life of Jesus, you would see the life of Jesus is vastly different. Jesus served first. He knew what was coming. He knew that he would be sitting again at the right hand of God. He knew that. But while he was on earth, he was in a place of service. We should be as well. And then lead as Jesus led. This has to do with influence. And God has given you incredible influence within your family, within your workplace. Most likely you see the same people when you go to Walmart and Kroger. He's given you all kinds of influence. The gym you attend, the hobbies you have, the other shops that you go to. He's given you influence. And look at all of these people in your family and outside of your family. And what would it be like if you were to simply understand that God is inviting you to a faith that works? That's not based off of intellectualism and some, some things you can learn and study and all that. But you know that you would know him personally. And then God's inviting you not to some emotional roller coaster, because be honest with you, you probably have that before you gave your life to Jesus. Or before you even professed to know Jesus. His life is better. The only way that the life is fulfilled in this way is if we, or that we be with Jesus, then we will become like Jesus. And we will do what Jesus did because his life embodies ours. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We say we love you. We say it all the time. But it's so true. Most of us in this room or who are listening right now have committed their lives to you. So Jesus, we do love you. And Jesus, we ask that you would do a supernatural work in our lives. We can all stumble. We at our core are all sinners. We all began with the sin nature. We all have a flesh that's warring against the spirit. We all live in the world and with the world systems. And we all know that the Satan, the evil one, is trying to come at us and the church. But we say hallelujah because we know that your word is true. When you told Peter... Also, the other disciples, you said that, that the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing, and it's still advancing. So, Jesus, forgive us for the times that we've gotten this wrong. Forgive us for the times where we were so caught up in our own head. Forgive us for the times where, where we were just basing everything on how we felt. And, God, help us to move forward by your power and through your grace as we live out this faith 
that works. Amen. Amen.